Welcome to the QAV podcast. If you're brand new, I just want to introduce the podcast a little bit so you know what you're getting yourself into. If you've listened to the show before, feel free to just fast forward a minute or two. If you're brand new, here's the deal. Uh, my name's Cameron Riley. Tony Kynaston is an old friend of mine. He's a very successful share market investor. I'm talking very, very, very successful. He's been doing it 30 years. He's one of the best in the country in terms of a private investor. Very good uh, track record over 30 years. And what this podcast is about is Tony basically teaches me everything that he knows about investing in the stock market. And you get to listen. But if you're coming into this for the first time, you'll find that this episode, the current episodes, assume a certain level of prior knowledge. We assume that you know what we're talking about, his system, his methodology, which we explain in earlier episodes. So feel free to listen if you want to get the vibe for what's going on, but some of it's not going to make much sense unless you understand what the checklist is, etc. I recommend if you're brand new, you go back and listen to uh, Season 3, Episode 1, Episode 3 and Episode 5, where we go into Tony's background and his system and his methodology in a lot more detail. And then feel free to listen to the contemporary episodes, the current episodes. You'll understand more of the context of what we're talking about. With that, let's get into today's show. Welcome back to QAVTK, episode 429. How are you today? Very well, Cam. A little bit bleary-eyed after watching the British Open for the last four days at night, but um, no, good. Living you the just, life in lockdown. <laughs> what hours is that on? Uh, it was coming on about seven at night and then going through to about four in the morning, but I didn't stay up the whole time. How long do you stay up? I was staying up until around midnight watching it and Just then sort of checking things again about four in the morning to see how it finished. Four in the morning? Yep. You have to get up and do a four o'clock in the morning pee break like I do? <laughs> I don't know. I was just waking up naturally. Got no idea. Just excited. Yeah. Yeah, it probably was. Yeah. It's, oh, it's like you live in lockdown, you just lose all sense of time anyway. Like, <laughs> it's not like I'm getting up and going to play golf or something. It's just it's yeah. like being at Crown Casino. <laughs> it is a bit, except we've got clocks on the walls here. Yeah, you should yeah. take them down and then you just yeah. won't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, so we had a couple of betting pools going under who was going to win the British Open and I managed to win them both, which was good. Well done. Lucky yeah. Kynaston, that's your name. Yeah, well, another spreadsheet on golf tipping. Well. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that's good. So you're hanging in there. Looks like your prediction or Norman Swan's prediction last week that Sydney could be in lockdown till mm. Christmas might be true. <laughs> the way it's going. God, I hope not. But yeah, it could be. Melbourne's in lockdown. Yep. That's anyway, been extended. People don't need to be reminded about that. It's all depressing. Let's get into fun stuff. Brent Sweeney. <laughs> QAV Club member uh, posted uh, on our Facebook page. Uh, Thanks, QAV Investor Community, Cameron and Tony. I just completed my financial year in calculations and I achieved a 21.29% return with dividends reinvested. I started in February, so I only captured five months of the financial year. This is in comparison to the AXJOA, the All Lords. 
that's the uh, total return. Is that the total? I think it's the total. Yeah. yeah. Which returned yeah. 8.44% from the beginning of February. So um, terrific uh, result for Brent. Well done, I Brent. found that 14 out of 19 stocks were in the green, 73% strike rate, which I'm very impressed with. Many thanks. I'm interested to know what strike rate others have managed to achieve. So um, any other QAV club members out there? Well, I'm actually working on like a little table, little like a mm. like a table where people can post their results, and um, we can all we we can have like a competition. We'll uh, make it interesting. Uh, yeah, like a league table. Yeah, the winner each yeah. month gets to go and spend a week at Tony's place in uh, lockdown. <laughs> in, at Hotel California. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Andrew mm. McLennan then posted, I've owned 24 stocks in my 14-month QAV journey with a 62.5%, with 62.5% returning a positive strike rate. So, Which is about what I get too, so that's, a, that's pretty normal, I think. Yeah, 6 out of 10, you always say, right? Yeah, correct. That's great. So well done, guys. Uh, it's, it's really um, always great to see people posting the kind of success that they're having. Mm. Tony, can we go over the wording of the three-point trendline stuff in the Bible? Because um, I had a backwards and forwards with somebody the other day and uh, and, it, and I got all discombobulated. Sure. Um because we've, we've had a couple of discussions about this recently in, I don't know, Facebook or emails or something. And um, I know it's sort of a, it's a bit of a, sort of, it's in fluid, fluid, flux. It's a bit fluid, the wording at the moment. Yeah, it is. We're, I mean, um, the I don't think the Bible has the fat bottom and fat top lines, flat bottom and flat top lines in it yet. No, it doesn't. Good, rem- good point. I have to do that. Yeah. But this is just and, about, uh, yeah. sorry, this is just about drawing the lines outside of that. Um, mm-hmm. So it says uh, to draw a byline, this is on page 17 for people playing along at home. Um, the rule on a five-year monthly chart, i.e. a chart which shows month-end prices over five years, mark the highest peak after the last breach of a sell line. Mm-hmm. Is th- is that true? Yeah, it's the buy line follows a sell line. Right, but when I'm drawing a chart, I'm mm-hmm. not usually looking for the last sell line. I start when I'm doing a buy line. I'm just doing the highest peak, the highest point on the chart. Am yep. I doing it wrong? Should I be checking if there's a buy yeah, line you are. or something? Yeah, so you you should. Do what you're doing and then draw the sell line and then uh, check to see if the if the buy line is before the sell line. If it is, you need to draw another buy line later on. So it's probably better if we work through an example. What's a good example? Um, Let's look at uh, one of the ones that we're going to have to talk about later, um, or CBA. You want to do CBA? Let's do CBA. Okay. I'll tell you why. Okay. Let's do CBA. Right. So how would you start? Okay. Well, its highest point on a five-year monthly is like uh, June, end of June 2021. So I'm ignoring that to start with. And I'm going. Why is that? 
Well, because it's uh, been in a buy for a while. It's uh, dropped back just recently, but I think it was a buy well before that. So I want to see when it became a buy uh, before it went on its latest run from sort of uh, COVID on up. Yeah, so you want the buy that comes after the sell, the last sell. Well, I would go back and find the highest point before the latest run. So that is uh, April 2017, I think, $87.40. Yep. And then I would normally draw a line through the next highest peak to the right that's not cutting anything else off, which I think is probably January 2020. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so... That is straightforward, and if I dragged that out, it would have told me that it had become a buy. Um, it's the only problem is that's a flat top. Oh, yeah, it is right. Is it really? Yeah. So. Oh, is it? You, yeah. Well, just using ah. the segment tool and stock doctor, I'm seeing minus two point seven seven percent between those two points. Uh, two point eight three percent. Is that what you said? Yeah, I had 2.77, but yeah, okay. the, Close the points don't always anchor on the peaks, yeah. Okay, so that falls foul of the flat right line rule. So uh, what do we do then? Do we take the last one as the first one? We do, yeah. Right. And so then we're drawing it through January 21? Uh, January 21. Yeah. Peak to peak. Well, you can actually draw it. You're actually drawing it before then, Cam. You're doing it through uh, July 2020. Oh, right. no, sorry. You're right. No, the next one's higher. Sorry. January 21. Yep. Okay. So January 21. Um, then uh, I have to work out what the previous sell line was. Yeah, so I, I think this will be a fairly straightforward one. You don't, you, you should do it, but I think you'll find the sell happened prior to January twenty one, so or the, prior to that where it crosses. Sorry. Right. So the previous sell line would have started May eighteen was at sixty nine three, but then October eighteen was at sixty nine point two three. And then January 19 was at 69.1. So what's that? Oh, that's only 1.3%. So, okay. So I, you could do, I'm not going to start where you're starting. I think the, again, we start with the low point on the graph, with it, which is March 2020. Oh, so I don't need to go back before that first peak for the byline? No, the, the point is we draw the, Buy line as we have, and then we draw the sell line and see if the buy line comes after the sell. So the so you start COVID cough March twenty twenty. What are you going to use as your L two? No, so September. L2, September, yeah. However, that's a flat bottom of four percent difference. God, three percent. I got yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> So then we use September as L1. Yeah. And, and then February? the next lowest peak to the right is going to be February 21. Which is the sell line that caused you to sell today or call a sell Correct. today. 
Yep. Okay. So the byline that we drew started in uh, January 2020. So that comes before the current cell line, but correct. But there would have been a cell line before that. The Bible says correct. Mark the highest peak after the last breach of a cell line. So okay, let's go back a week. I know that you've decided that you're going to sell CBA today, but go back a week before that occurred. What would the last cell line have looked like then? Uh, Is the last cell line the last time it breached the cell line or just the last cell line in theory, even if it hasn't breached the cell line? No, it's the last time it breached. So it would have been, as you were starting to say before, back around March... 2019 and then probably up through December 2019. Although I'll have to check that because it, it looks like there's a flat bottom going on there. So it starts with May 2018 and then goes through October 18, January 19, March 19. But if I draw a line through those, there's only like 1.5% between all those points. So I'm going to take the rightmost point there, which is the last one on that flat bottom. March 19. March 19. Yep. yep. And then put it up through October 19. We're actually then October 19 would probably mean we want to use December 19 because there's a, a trough after that. Yeah. So then I'm getting a sell back in February 2020. Yeah. So our byline's fine. It comes after that sell. But it starts before the sell. We've got H1 in January 2020 and the cell in February 2020. Yeah, that's okay. The last cell would have been February 2020 and the current buy that we just did before was March 21. So that comes after the last cell. Yeah, but the wording in the Bible says, mark the highest peak after the last breach of a cell line then mark the next highest price or peak to the right of the first price. But what we've done here is uh, H1 comes before the breach of the cell line. Okay, yeah, I see. I think the Bible's wrong then. We're just looking for a, a byline that comes after that cell line. Yes, right. So what I think it should say is you mark the highest peak, then you mark the next highest price or peak to the right of the first price, which comes after the breach of a cell line. That's the second H peak that needs to true. come after the cell line. Yeah, true. That's what I thought. And that's actually as you put it to somebody in an email or, or, or a Facebook post or something last week. I can't okay. remember who it was, but you said you said that. And uh, right. Okay. Well, that was exhausting. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, then well, you draw a line through the, the last points. week or two, like going through all with Dylan <laughs> trying to code it and other people. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, let me just uh, make a note in my revision history that I changed that. Okay. All right. Well, I'll post that CBA chart up onto the website, and uh, people can have a look at it and compare it with their own. But that's uh, that's instructive. Thanks for walking through that. And um, shout out to, I think it was Andrew who picked up that uh, 
there were some wording changes in the Bible that he was confused by and uh, good reason to be confused because they were it was probably wrong. I don't know how that crept in there. Sorry about that, Andrew, and anyone else who's been confused by that. Surprised no one else has picked it up and asked me about it, actually, before now. Paul uh, on MML, he's, he's talking about uh, your deep dive into Medusa mining last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, have you seen what's happened to its share price since then? No, what's happened? Uh, nothing. It's, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, what a hum's up 7% today. GLE is up 9% today. Oh, fantastic. Well, fantastic for me. Yeah, it's nearly back to what I paid for it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you were talking about, you did your deep dive on M&L last week and Paul says... Hi, guys. Really like the analysis of MML. One thing that might factor into the depressed price is their safety record. I think there's been a number of deaths at their mine in the last year, which makes it an unattractive ongoing investment for many, myself included. On the plus side, a quick perusal of ASX releases shows the CEO is purchasing shares under a superannuation trust he shares with his wife, which would not show up on the stock doctor register. Although small purchases, it does appear to be a positive pattern. Cheers, Paul. What do you think of all of that, Tony? No, oh, it's good analysis from Paul. I, if I wasn't aware of it, uh, I'd have to go and look at what their safety record is and whether it's um, a cause for concern. Obviously, it is if someone's died, but um, I just don't know how how bad it is. And I'd expect for an ASX listed company that if they've had a a death on the mine, that they'd, they'd be doing a lot to improve their safety procedures as well. Right. But yeah, I haven't looked into it. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Tony, can I ask you a question about working out my portfolio performance for the last financial years? I said earlier I was. Um, putting up this uh, this like table for QAV club members to report their performance. So I thought I should work out my performance for last year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I uh, bought and sold a lot of stuff last year, had a couple of stocks that did really well, a couple that didn't do so well, um, had to sell a bunch of stuff because I needed to pay bills. And, um, and then – Right towards the end, like early June, late late May, early June, bought a bunch of stocks, added a lot of capital to it. And so if I look at my portfolio report in ShareSite or Stock Doctor, it says something like 5% for the year. Right. Um, but I know, I mean, I had some stocks that went up 50%, 70%, TRS, I had CCP, both had really good runs for the year. Um so it doesn't seem to reflect what really happened. So I, I, I tried to break it out. I did a, I, I did a download or, or an export out of Stock Doctor into a spreadsheet. And I remember because we talked about this some time ago with one of our QAV club members and I was and we were saying, you know, if you have a lot of capital going in and out, you need to look at each stock and work out what the performance was on that stock that you bought and sold and then tally up the performances to get an overall performance. Is that right? Uh, don't, yeah, I don't think so. I think I think if you've put lots of capital in in the last month, that's going to depress your performance because it's going to give you the um, all of the 
depreciations at less depreciations you've had over the year uh, over that last capital base probably. Yeah. But it, it depends on the method of calculation. There's very different methods of calculation. Sometimes it's the average capital base. Sometimes they just take this ending capital away from the starting capital and then um, <clears throat> put that over the starting capital to give you a return. But that's not going to be a fair comparison because if you put a lot in at the end, uh, it depresses the the return. Sorry, right. it improves the return if you put it. If you started off with ten thousand dollars and you put fifty thousand dollars in the last month, mm. you haven't made forty thousand. You've just added more capital. Yeah, right. Yeah. So the I think what we talked about before was doing it month on month, and then uh, like if so, in that last month, if you put a lot of capital in and and didn't have much of a return, it's just going to be one twelfth of the final calculation. Right. Okay. So if you do if you do starting if you do starting amount of capital and then at the end of the first month you work out what the increase was and then do it for the second month, third month, et cetera, and sum all those up, that's probably a better calculation, but it's it's a complicated way of doing it. Right. What's so what I did, as I said before, was I I looked at all of the trades. And the ones that I sold, I worked out what the performance of them was during the duration that I owned them. The ones that I didn't sell, I hadn't sold by the end of the financial year, <clears throat> I just did a mark-to-market for the end of the financial year and calculated what the performance of it was. Then I had uh, TRS. I had a couple of parcels of TRS which I owned before the beginning of the last financial year but sold during the financial year. So I did a mark-to-market on what they were worth at the beginning of the 2021 financial year and calculated from that. So then I ended up with a like a, a table of individual performances for each stock and added those up. That And that said I, I my portfolio was down 57% for the financial year and I thought, well, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> no. No, it's because you're not – if you had – if you'd worked out the volume weighted – situation for each of those stocks, you're still going to have the same problem that you put lots of capital in towards the end. Right. So I think the best way to do it, if you if you got lots of in and outs, is to do it month on month and add up the months. Like I've been doing for the last couple of years with the QAV portfolio, just monthly uh, results. Yeah, we're doing a mark-to-market each month for sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's Which is not quite what we were doing with the dummy portfolio. We were doing annual ones as well. Because the portfolio doesn't have all those ins and outs in it. We didn't introduce any new capital. Yes. Yeah, yeah. right. But I was doing a monthly uh, end-of-month summary with the mark-to-markets and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, this is that's that's time-consuming and annoying, Tony. I don't want to do that. Why Why don't these uh, platforms like ShareSite and Nevexa and StockDoctor do that for me? We'll probably need to talk to them or an accountant because I'm not an expert in this field. They probably do. Um, it's just what are the options you can select? Uh, We're getting into money weightings versus other weightings, so I'm just not sure what the option is. I'm sure one of our listeners knows, you yeah. know, how it works. Somebody please tell me because it's did my head in this morning. I hate spreadsheets, as everyone knows. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I can't can't help you much more than that because, you know, over time all that kind of ins and outs should even out to a certain extent. I'm assuming. Right. 
And it probably helps if you just, well, I guess if you're adding, you'll always be adding more capital if you're lucky. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you've still got that situation where you need to work out if you, if you add a million bucks in, uh, what's the performance if you're trying to keep track of it? Yeah, my, my um, I guess the way I've done it for myself is to ignore the capital inflows and outflows because um, if, if you had inflows in one year, it resets the base for the next year and you've got to get a return off that capital anyway. So if this year looks good because you put money in, next year's got to look good as well because of performance, not because that money the money was already in there, if that makes sense. What if you add more money the next year as well? Well, yeah, if you're money, money every year, year yeah, you're going to look really good over <laughs> time. <laughs> if, you, if you're using a dodgy calculation, but if you're actually trying yeah. to work out the actual performance, it's complicated. Yeah, there are. Um, I've done it before using IRR calculations, which is a formula in Excel, which takes into account each month's ins and outs. So it gives you a... Um, a better calculation of your internal rate of return. Right. Uh, but that's kind of, yeah. Um, again, that's kind of theoretical. Okay. Only because it's like it's, um, say say it calculated you had a 10% return for the year. What does that mean for you? You had so many ins and outs, it's pretty hard to make any decisions based on that. And if you took lots out in the first month, that might affect the internal rate of return and put lots in the last month, it'll still affect the IRR. So how do you know if you're doing a good job or not? Stop taking money out of your portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's easy for you to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my guess would be to do it month by month and add it up. Okay. I'll have a crack at that. Thank you. Uh, all right. You wanted to uh, talk a little bit further about the question we had last week. We had a um, young fellow, 25, yeah. said, uh, you know, if you were 25, what would you do? Yeah. Uh, how would you do it? Uh, you wanted to expand on your answer yeah. a little bit? Yeah. So this is a bit like the uh, <clears throat> the article we wrote on uh, private school education and what it would be worth to you over a long period of time if you took that money and invested it using QAV. So the benchmark answer to the question is to um, take a pot of money and let it accumulate without touching it for 30 years. And I've compared that against um, something that we've done ourselves, which is a blend of using property and gearing and investing in the stock market. I just wanted to run through that. I hasten to add this is not in any way financial advice for the person who asked the question, but it's I'm doing it to highlight a couple of things. One is the use of gearing and two is um, I think one of the things which I found useful and motivational over the years and we spoke about briefly before is doing up a financial plan in a spreadsheet for your own circumstances and to, to play around with those numbers and see you know, what a period of time that suits you and your horizons might look like. So <clears throat> I've just done a quick one here, um, on my computer and I assume the person uh, who was 25 could invest for the next 30 years until retirement at 55. Um, and I put some other assumptions in, which, which may be unrealistic for a 25-year-old, but they make the math easy so we can talk about it. And the assumption I, I used was that... Um, the person went out and bought 
uh, a house to live in which was worth a million dollars. And, and I picked that number because it's a it's a one, so it's easy to do the math, but and that might be unrealistic that someone could do that at 25. Um, but interest rates are low. So you, generally to buy a million-dollar house, you'd need um, a deposit of 200000 and you'd borrow 800000 from the bank. And I let that run just without doing any sums at all. I let that run for 30 years, and which is pretty much how most people in Australia do their investing. They go and buy a house when they're young, as soon as they can, and they live in it. And um, when they get to retirement age, they sell it, pay off the debt, and you know go from there, work out their retirements, buy a cheaper house, use the difference to invest for their retirement. But that that house using a nine percent inflator for the house uh, would be worth about thirteen million dollars over th- after thirty years. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the um. The gearing doesn't change, so that $800,000 of mortgage, um, I guess it'll get paid off over 30 years, but it never got higher than what it started, which was $800,000, which means the equity is now to, you know, um, 12.2, which is a nice nice sum. I mean, you've got to take into account that that $12.2 million in 30 years' time isn't worth $12.2 million now. So then next base case to compare that, compare that to is to have $200,000 of equity instead of using it for a deposit in your house to go off and uh, invest in the stock market using QAV. In other words, it grows at 19.5%. And after 30 years, you get to $31 million. So that's better than putting it into your house and letting it um, accumulate over time. <clears throat> that makes sense because the um, house accumulated at 9%. Uh, and QAV is accumulating at 19.5%. Um, but there's kind of a blend which worked for me, and these aren't my numbers, but I just wanted to share them as an example. So the thing to note, first of all, is if, if you go out and buy a house with 200 down uh, on a million dollars, over the first five years, say, <clears throat> the value of the house grows to $1.5 million, and that's just 9% growth every year. Uh, but your equity, because the mortgage hasn't gone up, it's still $800,000, your equity is growing to be $700,000, which is actually about a 30% return because you had leverage. So that's actually better than QAV. So we kind of need to harness that, uh, which um, turns out to be a blend of uh, investing in, in your own home, letting the equity grow because of natural growth and gearing, and then Re, redrawing down the mortgage uh, and putting it into um, shares. So, for example, after that five years, the house is worth $1.5 million, but your equity is worth $700,000. The, the hearing is worth $800,000. So you've actually got um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of equity. Your house is worth $1.5 million. You can go back to the bank and say, <clears throat> how much would you – lend me now that my house is worth $1.5 million, and the bank would say 80%. So you can reduce your gear, increase your gearing, reduce your equity. So if you geared up again, you would have $1.2 million worth of gearing, which is 80% of the new house value after five years of $1.5 million, which means your equity has dropped to be $300,000. But you've got an extra $400,000 there to put into the share market. That 
new gearing, if you like, doesn't again doesn't change over time. So after another five years, so ten years into this scenario, <clears throat> your house has gone up in value again. It's now worth two point three million dollars. Your gearing hasn't changed at one point two million dollars. So you now have equity of one point one million. If you've invested the the share into the share market and the uh, the four hundred thousand that went into the share market when you re-geared is now worth a million dollars. You've now got one point seven five million dollars or one point seven million dollars of equity after ten years. So you've turned that two hundred thousand dollars into one point seven million dollars over ten years, which is quite a high return of equity. Oh, sorry, return on yeah, return on equity and, and CAGR cumulative um, appreciated growth. And then if you sort of let that continue on. Uh, at the end of 30 years, you would then have $48 million in equity because the house keeps appreciating at 9%, but the shares keep appreciating at 19.5% and your gearing hasn't changed and you probably paid it off anyway over that time. Bear in mind, you need a, a job to, to pay for the gearing um, and you need, but bear in mind as well, you're getting some income from the dividends um, and at a certain point during that investment process, the dividends get large enough to pay for all the gearing. Right. So you can stop working if you want. I haven't, for this calculation, I haven't worked out what it was. Anyway, if you did it again, if you re-geared again and invested in the market um, after 15 years, without going through all the numbers, it gets to $64 million um, as your total equity, which is better than, Starting off with two hundred thousand and putting it in the share market, where you ended up with thirty, and it's all because of the power of leverage, um, which and the fact that the gearing doesn't increase over time, but the house appreciates in value and the stocks appreciate in value, and eventually, as we said, the stocks can pay off the the mortgage and keep going. So, I think it's worthwhile for anybody really to sit down and do this kind of calculation for themselves, put their own figures in work out their own time horizon, knowing their own circumstances, work out when they're comfortable re-gearing and putting the increased equity into the share market uh, and uh, and doing this calculation for themselves. Um, it's, it's quite motivational and uh, for someone who's got 30 years to go, it can become quite a big sum. Wow. Can you share your spreadsheet with us? I knew you'd ask that. <laughs> um I'd probably prefer to. Yes, I can. I'll I'll um, I'll tidy it up. It's just notes for me at the moment, and share it within a week or two. Okay. But I'll share it as as basically a template for people to do their own plans with, so they can punch in their numbers that they think suit them, and then they can see what it comes out with at the end. And what about for people who are fifty, Tony? Uh, where do we you can start? Still punch numbers in. You've got. Well, how long do you plan to invest for? Uh, 20 years, well, the rest, 30 years. The rest of my life. I'm not sure how long yeah, I've got. Go. So these numbers still apply to you. So the same thing works whether you're 25 or 50. Correct, yeah. You'll have to put your different assumptions in about gearing because if you don't have a job to pay it off, that might be because you've retired, <clears throat> that might be difficult. But, yeah, you can play around with the numbers and um, come up with your own projections. Terrific. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that before, the power of the gearing. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the real that's the real benefit of owning property. And, of course, <clears throat> a couple of other comments to make was this is this is basically what I've done over the years. Um, the numbers aren't, aren't real for me, but 
Uh, and, you know, it, we've bought and sold property along the way. We've kept property and um, negatively geared it and then bought another property. So all those things muddy the waters. Um, yeah. But they can all be they can all be spreadsheeted and planned. Uh, and a couple of other things to point out is when um, in this model I'm just using an interest-only loan, so I'm not, you know, you've got to take into account that these days interest-only loans aren't as easy to come by. So, um, again, it just delays the period of time until the shares are big enough to pay off both the principal and interest for the loan. Whereas when I did it, you know, 20-odd years ago when I started, you could pay off just the interest component, um, which was cheaper to do. They're still available today. I still have one. But um, after the Hank inquiry, the bank has cracked down on them and how much they'll lend interest only. Right. But in my principal and interest mortgage, I still have a, an offset facility, which means if I put money in the bank, it offsets the interest. And I have a redraw facility, which means if I um, have paid as the as the um, variable nature of the interest rates change, but the repayments don't, if I've got ahead in my repayments, I can redraw it. So, you know, there are other ways of doing it. Um, but I think also too, you know, no one laid out this map for me 20 years ago. So I had to sort of problem solve this and game it along the way and spreadsheet it and plan it. And that's the challenge I'm throwing out to the 25-year-olds out there is you may not be able to do exactly what I've done, but work it out for yourselves. Maybe maybe investment properties allow you to gear and when they increase in value, you can put the money into the share market at a better rate of return. <clears throat> maybe, uh, maybe you start off in the country and buy property in the country um, which, you know, is a lot cheaper than in the city. That might be the way you get your foothold in the market. Uh, it won't all people be underwater in 30 years too, like property Sorry? in the city. It won't all be underwater in 30 years like property <laughs> in the city. Yeah. Um, maybe you want to take on a margin line, as some of our subscribers have told us they do, uh, at least to get you going. Maybe that's how you – maybe you do QAV until you get to a $200,000 deposit and then you start buying property. And then you can gear it after five years or whatever the period of time is. But yeah, certainly you'll need to solve your own problems going forward. But I just wanted to get people to think about this mentality, A, of doing a plan for themselves and B, of um, using the gearing that's available uh, with property to, to boost their returns. I think most 25-year-olds probably think they're just going to put it in Bitcoin and <laughs> then get rich like that in five years. Yeah, and that's I mean, that's probably one of the, you know, I wouldn't say a regret, but one of the history, the learnings for me was that I didn't start doing this until I was 35. So yeah, um, if I started when I was 25, the order of magnitude of our equity would be a lot higher now than it is. But anyway, but it's, that's why I've decided to share this and that's why it's great for a 25-year-old to be able to do it because the end numbers are so much higher after 30 years or 40 years or 50 years. So you just you didn't get this from anywhere when you were – 30, no. you just worked it out. 35, you Correct. just figured it out at some point. Correct, yeah. And, wow. and you know, along the way, like the, it goes against conventional wisdom. I mean, I had a boss at work who said, what the hell are you borrowing against your house to invest in the share market for? And I just figured that if everything went south, I just had a mortgage on the house, um, which would take longer to pay off. That was the right. sort of fallback. But as it turned yeah. out, it worked well. 
I wonder, you know, if we keep doing this a uh, few years, at some point, a few years from now, I think uh, people will be able to go into a bank and say, I just want to borrow money to invest in shares. And they'll say, what are you talking about? And you go QAV and they'll go, banks will go, oh, QAV, okay, it's fine. Like, yeah, uh, how much do you want? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Proven. It's more yeah. solid than real estate. Oh, thanks, Tony. Well, there you go. Uh, 25-year-olds listening to this. Uh, good luck. 35-year-olds and 50-year-olds. Yeah. Get out there and plan and see what you can get to. Yeah. And play around with it. Play around with gearing. Yeah. Mm. All right. Uh, moving right along. Well, that's the end of the free episode for this week. For the brand new folks, I want you to know that each week we have a free episode and a premium episode. Free episode runs about half an hour. Premium episode usually runs for an extra half hour to an hour, depending on how many questions we have from our audience that week, because we spend a lot of that time answering questions. Uh, if you want to check out the premium episodes, you can go up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au, and sign up for the two-week free trial. You get to have a look at the premium episodes. You get to have a look at the checklist, the Getting Started Guide, all of the video content that we have. Uh, you get invited to our VIP dinners and our VIP Zoom calls for club members. You get to ask Tony questions that we can answer. You get to get invited to our uh, Facebook group, our private Facebook group, etc., etc. So, And also we get a, a private uh, club member newsletter each week we send out as well with some stuff in it. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au. But as I said, if you're brand new and you want to, you're trying to figure out what's going on, Go back and listen to Season 3, Episodes 1, 3, and 5, 301, 303, and 305. And then you might also want to go back and listen to Season 1 as well, all of the free episodes in Season 1, where we go into a lot of detail about Tony's system and methodology and figure out if this is right for you, if it's something that you want to go further with, if you want to learn how to invest like Tony does, then you can check out the QAV Club. Uh, the other thing I always have to say is we're not financial advisors, so don't take anything you hear on this as financial advice. This is just here to teach how one guy invests and thinks about investing. If you need financial advice or tax advice, please go see a financial advisor or a tax advisor. Uh, with that, stay safe. Good luck with your investing, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>